KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. For our holiday show, we want to talk about the Christmas truce of World War I. It's a unique event in the history of modern warfare. Adam Hochschild will explain. Also, our Christmas music special. Bob Dylan fans have been puzzled and troubled by his Christmas album, Christmas in the Heart, ever since he released it in 2009. To help figure out what Dylan was doing, we turn to Sean Wallent. He's the official historian at the official website bobdylan.com, and he also teaches American history at Princeton. But first, the biggest strike in the country this year and the biggest in the history of American universities may be over. After five weeks of picketing and protests, the union representing 48,000 grad student employees at the University of California announced a settlement offer by the university, and members are voting this week. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches history at UC Santa Barbara, where he heads the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author of 16 books. He also writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, Descent, and The Guardian. We reached him today once again in Santa Barbara. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, the university is offering salary boosts of something like 55% to the lowest paid teaching assistants who currently get about $23,000 in an academic year. This is over the next two and a half years. And there's more money for TAs at Berkeley and UCLA. And everybody would receive increases in health and childcare benefits. What do you think of this offer? Well, there's no doubt this is a, a major victory for graduate students, teaching assistants, and really for, for low-wage workers across the country. And, and you know, while there's some, some dissension about it, increasing wages in two and a half years by 50% or actually more for many of them uh, is really uh, dramatic. I mean, in the recent rail strike, you know, oh, 25% wage increase, you know, and, and then you see other places, you know, oh, we're giving 10% over a few, you know, here it's, 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 it's dramatic and it's, it's more than inflation. And I think, and it came after a very hard fought strike, uh, one which became increasingly political. It forced the governor and the, you know, the president of the university to directly intervene. They had to get a mediator. So I think this demonstrated that dramatic change Changes can take place, you know, in this in this moment. So I think we should. I think that that this wage increases. It's a qualitative increase. It's not just a sort of incremental. It's a qualitative increase. I think that's very important. So let's look at some of the details here. The agreement would raise the minimum pay from this twenty three thousand to about thirty four thousand. This is for nine months of part time work by the fall term of twenty twenty four. And at Berkeley. And UCLA in San Francisco, they would get 36500 There's also a separate offer to graduate student researchers who would make a minimum of 35000 for 50% uh, time work by October 2024. And uh, child care reimbursement would be set at $1,350 per quarter, plus the same amount for the summer. And UC said it would pay 100% of health insurance for the children of mm -hmm. eligible student workers, and they would increase pay for family leave. Nevertheless, the headline in the LA Times a couple of days ago was dissension brews among striking UC union members over tentative 
agreement. So we need to also look at some of the problem areas that the opponents of a yes vote have raised. First, they say the money doesn't come until the second and third years and students need the money right away. It's right away that their rent is too high. And some of them won't even be TAs in, in three years. One difference between the, the constituency here, uh, graduate student teaching assistants, uh, you know, is that they are here just probably six years or something like that, seven years, and then they're in theory they're gone. In theory, they then go off and get a better job. Uh, that's unlike, say, the old days, an auto worker was in there for 30 or 40 years, and you could say, well, two years from now, you'll get this. X and, well, if I'm a grad student, that's like, you know, a good deal of their entire time they're here. So that is an issue. Uh, but uh, they, they, they do receive actually a 7.5% increase this year, uh, 90 days after the contract's ratified. And then in September, it's a 16%. I mean, let, let me just make one point why I think that the, the political mobilization and the and the militancy of the of the workers really did pay off initially uc was really nickel and diming uh this and for example in the in the third in the third year the 2024 they were offering 3.5 percent you know well you might think a victory would be, would be doubling that to seven percent or something no no it, it went to 16 percent so i mean so you do get yes it's two and a half years two years from now two and a half years from now it's uh unusual in that respect one more thing I do want to say just in terms of what's good about it is that for many years, if you were an experienced teaching assistant, got no recognition of that in terms of your salary. You just got the same as when you began. And now they've instituted these, these sort of steps, you know, like if you're more experienced, you get more. And so that means that that second and third year TAs or fourth year, you know, they will they will get even more. So that's that's a good thing. And 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 so I think there's no gainsaying, no matter how critical you may be of some other parts of this contract, that it's a dramatic increase in wages. Now it, it was started from a low base, and, and you know California's expensive, but but uh, you know and it may not even at the highest levels, you know you're still how you're still struggling, but nevertheless it is a dramatic increase in percentage terms. For a lot of the strikers, there's a fairly obscure issue that was important: the non-resident tuition. This is out-of-state right. and international students have to pay a lot of money just to enroll. And yeah. the union demanded the end, or at least a substantial reduction in tuition for out-of-state and international students who were working as TAs. They were forced to give this up. What, yeah. What's the issue here? One of the great things about the University of California's uh, programs, of course, lots of international students, they don't therefore get the in-state uh, reduction in tuition. They have to pay this out-of-state tuition, out of, which is a lot. It partly that was instituted by the legislature, to, you know, to make uh, undergraduates, you know, from wealthy families pay, you know, a lot of state. But anyway, so it, it catches these international students who are basically on their own. And the union did want to have a remission of these very large fees. They didn't win that. And so lots of people are pissed off about that. What they did get was to sort of make it a bargaining issue. And, 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 and that's sort of touted. Now we can, you know, two years from now, we can fight on that more. They made it a bargaining issue. Initially, UC said, oh, this is, you, you have nothing to do with this. This is entirely a question of, of tuition and you can't deal with this. But they, they did succeed. Now, I don't know, you may think that's pretty uh, lukewarm uh, a victory to make it a bargaining issue for, for another day. But nevertheless, uh, that's what they got. But yes. And, and let me add, 
the governor and the legislature do not want to give low free tuition to out-of-state people. They're worried the taxpayers will revolt right. against that. Well, they did win one thing. They did win that a kind of codification of an informal way of doing it, that once a, a student from out of state or out of the country had achieved, uh, I think, advancing to candidacy, they would then have like three years of, of very low tuition be, while they're writing their dissertation. That was sort of codified. It had been informal beforehand. But you're right. It's a very sensitive question. I think a lot of these students from other, out other countries, they were they were the backbone of the strike. They were, you know, they were, this was a, this was an international uh, <laughs> uh, uh, movement. Workers of the world unite. Right. Yes, yes, that's right. No, the universe has made a big deal out of the fact that for the first time they are providing child care payments to employees of the university. Critics of this say that it's totally inadequate, $1,350 per quarter. Suppose you pay $25 an hour for child care. This is going to pay for less than five hours a week, which yeah. really is inadequate. Well, child care in general is a crisis around the entire country. It's expensive. And here in particular, it's a particular problem. And they, and they won a little bit, but they did, but nothing to really help get the cost of, of full-time child care, which is enormous. And really, it really can't, can't be, you know, how can you do it juggling a baby on your lap while you're you're working and writing and are in the lab? So that, yes, this is something they didn't win it. And, uh, and people are pissed about it, and uh, and rightly so. Now, I, I asked some people, how, what proportion of all graduate students have have children? It's probably ten percent, or maybe less. If you did have adequate childcare, well, then that would mean that you know more people would go to grad school. People who were maybe you know poor or had started a family early, and they would go. Oh yes, I could go to grad school and get a bit advanced degree, and that would be a democratic egalitarian thing. And then the university also made a big deal out of the fact that this is the first contract which provides for some health insurance for children. Now here, the, the fine print is pretty yeah. puzzling. Limited to single parents or single income households that fall above the free medical coverage threshold. What does that mean? Well, right. I, I have to say I'm a little puzzled myself by it. I think it means that uh, a, a lot of people would not qualify. <laughs> Basically, the impact yes. of this would be would be pretty small. This is a reference to to Medi-Cal, the the, right. the state right. insurance for low-income people. Right. 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 And I think if you're a single parent, you almost automatically qualify unless you actually have quite a yeah. good job. So yeah. they're saying those people will be covered by Medi-Cal, not by the university. So, and there was some concern that the university would pay for all this by raising tuition. What, what do we know about that? Well, the governor has said no. The governor made a statement. It's interesting. The governor did make a statement about th this settlement, and he very clearly said, nope. No, this is not going to increase tuition. In, in fact, he made it very clear that the uh, the money for these uh, enhancements will come out of the agreement that UC signed with the with the governor and the legislature approved of, of I think basically increasing uh, UC's uh, uh, budget by five percent every year for the next several years. And he said what he was saying there was, look, this is important. You got to give your the grad students higher uh, higher income. And that means you're going to have to shift some some money from somewhere else, but you aren't getting it out of tuition. He made that very clear. So union members are voting this week on this contract offer. If the vote is yes, the contract says, quote, employees must return to work, close quote. I mean, mm -hmm. the quarter is now over, but the fall quarter grades have not been handed in. So I assume this means the TAs are going to have to spend their Christmas vacation grading the final exams. 
That's correct. Yes, that is true. Yes. And, and if the vote is no, if the members reject the contract that the union has negotiated, what happens then? Well, then you go back to the bargaining table and and, the, and we should talk about the one major, I think I think it's the most d- divisive issue, which is, has to do with the pay differentials, which have yes. been created by this between uh, Berkeley at UCLA versus everyone else, which is a little bit, a little mystifying how this happened because the union, they wanted the housing costs to be covered, but they didn't make any demands for the increasing salary among the teaching assistants at UCLA and Berkeley, the two two really biggest campuses, that was not, and this kind of came at the last minute uh, and really was proposed by the, the university. You know, where did that come from and what's the rationale for it? Some argue, oh, well, more expensive to live at UCLA and Berkeley than, uh, you know, everywhere else. But that's not the case. And, you know, what you know, Irvine and and uh, UC and Santa Cruz and, and San Diego and Santa Barbara are also very expensive. That doesn't, that doesn't seem to compute. The other argument was, well, Berkeley and UCLA, they've always had these things called Top-ups. <laughs> top-ups. <laughs> yes, top-ups. I've really heard about, which which really, what, what, it, what, is, what it means, and this is true everywhere, but maybe more so at these universities, that a department or a dean or some smaller unit, some collab, would give extra money you know, to their instructors, to their teaching assistants. Or, and they, and maybe there was more of that happening at UCLA and Berkeley. Well, okay, but but the, these things will continue. So Ber- Berkeley and UCLA were given $2,500 extra in salary compared to everyone else. And frankly, that's created uh, a lot of dissension. And also among the faculty, the faculty, because one of the best things about the University of California system is that there's a standards that are applied to the entire system. And this seems to be institutionalizing a difference, you know? And and so the, the faculty has a stake in this. And if it applies to grad students, then other, it will apply to other things as well. So we don't want to get, start that. So if the vote is no, what happens then? Well, then, then we they go back. They go back bargaining, and the the teaching assistants who are on strike they don't they don't hand in their grades, and and some sympathetic faculty don't hand in their grades either. It continues on into the winter. Uh, that that's what would happen. Now, it, I should say it's not like a disaster if you don't hand in your grades. <laughs> you could you could do them later on, but nevertheless, it, it will it's it's disruptive. And uh, my informants tell me that it's likely that the contract will be ratified. And what happens if there's a yes majority, but a substantial no vote? Uh, There's been, in the past, we've had wildcat strikes at Santa Cruz. I heard there's been wildcat strikes at San Diego, and I've heard that Santa Barbara, there's also some concern about wildcat strikes. What happens then? Potentially, uh, it would involve uh, issues of disciplinary action, which did happen two years ago or two and a half years ago at, at, at UC Santa Cruz. Disciplinary action means firing the the TAs yes, who sir. continue to strike. Right, and they were and they were and they were fired for for they lost a quarter of employment or something like that. Then they were they were reinstated, but their wildcat at Santa Cruz actually. In the end, kind of not one exactly, but cl- close to it, they they received a, a $2,500 a year to all grad students there to, to make up for the high cost of, uh, of housing from out of the chancellor's budget. That was a good thing. And I would say, John, I would say this, the best outcome, in my view, as a historian, not as a participant, would be a yes vote, but with a strong minority uh, that wanted more. And here's the reason. 
Back in the 1940s, when the UAW was the largest and most progressive union in the country, it went from victory to victory with a divided membership because each each side prodded the other forward. And if that's the situation we have here, that's to the good. And I, I think there's good evidence that that's actually happened in the last month and a half. The the minority or the militant minority, they aren't that small minority, but they're they're there they're, and they have votes on the bargaining team. They prodded the majority to be more aggressive than would have been. So that's what I expect as an outside observer. I've, I've been criticized by some for even having an opinion. You're a faculty member. You, you know, st- keep your nose out of what the TAs are doing. But I do want to say that I think the faculty has a very big stake in this. Yeah. yeah. One of my mentors, labor historian David Montgomery, always said the day after the strike is extremely important. And what he meant was if the workers feel the settlement was a good one and that the strike was worth it, then the union comes out stronger and can prepare for the next strike, which in this case will be in three years. And that's a reason to vote yes in this case. I wonder what you think about that view of things. Well, I mean, yes, I, I think that's true that, that you want to, you, you, I mean, you don't want to be phony about it, but I think there's very good, a, a great deal of, uh, of support, uh, uh, evidence for saying, yes, this is a victory. We didn't get everything we wanted. Uh, uh, and we, and, and we, and we only have to wait two and a half, really two years because, you know, or less to prepare for the next round. And let me say here was a victory, uh, which is maybe now obscured originally. UC wanted like five years, a five-year contract or four or five, which is a long time. And who knows what's going to happen? And the the union uh, insisted on a much shorter one. So really, it's only two and a half years before we begin another cycle. I mean, now in the life of a grad student, you know, maybe that's half their experience here. But nevertheless, it's, that's relatively short in terms of what we think of as American uh, industrial relations. Nelson, any final thoughts? Yes, it's very possible that this, uh, uh, I think victory is, is the word that should describe this, this uh, strike and its outcome, will have a dramatic impact around the country, uh, not just in academia, but among all sorts of, of low wage and, you know, people, some college educated, some not, who say, look, if we don't have to settle for 10% or 8% or something, we can get 50%, we can really change our lives by joining a union, going on strike, and, and, you know, making demands. I think that's important. Nelson Lichtenstein, labor historian and activist. Nelson, thanks for helping us understand things today. You're welcome. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. For our holiday show, we want to talk about the Christmas truce of World War I. It's a unique event in the history of modern warfare. For comments, we turn to Adam Hochschild. He's the author of seven books, most recently the award-winning history of World War I, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914-1918. We talked about it here. We reached him today in Berkeley. Adam, welcome back. Good to be with you, John. We honor war makers regularly, but it's hard to think of cases where those who refuse to fight receive official recognition. I think you've noticed that. That's true. What's happening today is that there is not just among 
peace-minded types, but really from governments as well, which is quite surprising. Uh, a number of ways in which the Christmas truce of 1914 is being officially commemorated. It's quite unusual to see this, but and I think there's some reasons for it which we can get to, but it was also a very unusual event. This uh, happened, this was the first Christmas of a terrible war, the First World War. Well, remind us uh, what what happened on uh, December 25th, 1914, on the Western Front of World War One. Okay, well, let's roll the clock back a hundred years. The war had been going on for uh, uh, not quite five months. Hundreds of thousands of people had been killed. Europe had never seen industrialized warfare before. There were 27,000 French soldiers killed in a single day in August of that year. Um, and then along a portion of the Western Front, it was mainly the area where there were German troops on one side and British troops on the other side. On Christmas Day, a uh, hundred years ago tomorrow, uh, strange things started to happen. Uh, somebody would hold up a sign in the German trench saying, uh, we know shoot, you know shoot. Uh, someone would uh, pop his head out of a British trench and find that he wasn't shot at and would come out further and then would find German soldiers coming out to meet him in no man's land between the trenches. Um, in some areas the night before, uh, soldiers on one side had heard soldiers on the other side singing Christmas carols and had joined in because they knew some of the same carols. They just were singing them in different languages. So along this portion of the front uh, where it was the British facing the Germans, in much of that uh, long stretch, it was about 30 miles or so, soldiers from both sides, thousands of them, came out into this muddy, shell-pocked, uh, no-man's-land-between-the-trenches. They traded gifts, they traded uh, uh, German beer for British rum, they snipped off each other's coat buttons and traded them, uh, and they played soccer. There was no proper soccer field, of course, and there usually weren't soccer balls, but they kicked around a tin can or stuffed a straw into a sandbag and uh, kicked it around. Uh, it was an amazing and unprecedented event, and unfortunately, in that part of the world, it never happened again. And you say that this this week, this year, a hundred years later, uh, this Christmas truce is being celebrated officially, uh, especially in Britain. Uh, tell us what what's going on. Yeah, this is quite remarkable to see. It's always been marked unofficially, especially in recent years. There have been a couple of books about it. There was a film about it. There are a few places along the old Western Front where you can see a sort of crude homemade memorial of some sort. But what took me by surprise was this year it's being officially marked. There is a soccer tournament to commemorate the Christmas Truce soccer games with teams, youth teams from Britain, Belgium, Germany, France, Austria, uh, that's been taking place in Belgium this month. Uh, every school in the United Kingdom received a packet of materials about the Christmas truce, uh, photographs, eyewitness accounts, uh, uh, student worksheets, uh, bits of dialogue translated into various languages. How do you say to a, you know, a soldier on the other side, uh, I won't shoot if you won't shoot? 
things like that. And uh, in fact, there's also a children's competition in Britain to design a memorial uh, to the Christmas truce, and one of the judges was Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge. <laughs> wow, it doesn't uh, get any better than that. That's true. So I wondered, well, what, what makes it safe? And incidentally, I could also mention that there was a, a, a memorial soccer field inaugurated in Belgium, and the British and German ambassadors were both on, hmm. both on hands for this. I want to ask you about one other thing that you mentioned in your article about the Christmas cruise for Tom Dispatch. We've got a link at the website for this show, johnweiner.com. You say that there was a, a reenactment of sorts for a TV commercial in Britain that that's on video now. What's that? That's it's quite amazing. It's it's a very professionally done. They must have paid a lot of money for professional actors to do this. It runs about three minutes. It's from the supermarket chain Sainsbury's, uh, and uh, you know you can Google it and find it quite easily online. And it shows you know people reenacting the role of German and British soldiers. Uh, the commercial is for a uh, commemorative chocolate bar, <laughs> and the proceeds from this chocolate bar will go to the Royal British Legion, the official veterans organization. So there again, it's a kind of official commemoration of this startling outbreak of peace. And if you want to see that Sainsbury's uh, commercial with the reenactment of the Christmas truce, we have a, a link at the website for this show, johnweiner.com. So, uh, Adam Hochschild, I guess we should be delighted that for once the people who, who refuse to fight are being honored by the governments that sent them to fight in, in a useless and horrifying war. Or, or should we be delighted? Well, I think we should be delighted because this was a remarkable event. And it's good to see it being remembered. But uh, I'm curious about what makes it safe to be officially commemorated. And I think there are a couple of things. One is that the Christmas truce only lasted for a day or two. On some parts of the front, the very next day, firing started up uh, up again. A couple of places, uh, the ceasefire lasted for two or three days. But essentially, the war in its full fury resumed very quickly after this. Also, the Christmas truce didn't represent a breakdown of military discipline because it was sanctioned by officers on the scene. Officers as high-ranking as colonels came out to greet their counterparts from the other side uh, in no man's land. So these are two things that make it safe. Also, to be crass about it, commemorating anything these days can be big business. Mm. Uh, First World War tourism in northern France and Belgium is a huge industry. In Belgium alone, uh, the government is, uh, of the Flanders region is investing $41 million in new tourist facilities of one sort or another for this four-year commemorative period of the war, and that's not even counting private investment. And I'm sure they're thinking, well, if we can add a few peace sites to the existing war sites, so much the better. Uh, the other... Uh, profit-making industry that's gotten involved here is professional soccer, which is a huge business, particularly in Europe, where teams are worth billions of dollars. Five of the ten uh, most valuable professional soccer teams in the world are in Great Britain. 
And it's no accident that the Trade Association for Professional Soccer uh, is one of the people financing this packet of information that's going to all the British schools. And then the Trade Association for Soccer for all of Europe is also sponsoring the commemorative soccer tournament in Belgium. So but now what what exactly what exactly is the the connection here between today's billion dollar soccer uh, let's call it industry and soldiers refusing uh, to fight on Christmas Day of 1914? Well, one of the things that I mentioned was something they did on that day was they played soccer. And I think Okay. Professional soccer industry uh, sees a chance to associate itself with a good news historical event, uh-huh. um, get some publicity, and also professional soccer is in many European countries losing some of its audience because there's a lot of competition for people spending and leisure time. So I think that's one reason why they've latched onto this. Um, this raises the question of what's not going to be commemorated as over the next four years we reach anniversary after anniversary of various events in the First World War. Let me just remind our listeners, we're speaking with Adam Hochschild about the Christmas truce of 1914, 100 years ago today. Adam's the author of To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914-1918, and he wrote about the Christmas truce for Tom Dispatch. We have a link at the website for this show, johnweiner.com. In your book, To End All Wars, while you have a very uh, moving account of the Christmas truce, you describe some some far more subversive and radical acts of, of opposition to World War One. Absolutely. Uh, And they didn't happen until a couple of years later. In the spring of 1918, uh, the Tsar was overthrown in Russia. 300 years of the Romanov dynasty came to an end, uh, and the news of this uh, immediately spread through the Russian army. Uh, And there was an American correspondent, a United Press correspondent, with the Russian army at the front, And he watched through his binoculars as Russian and German troops met in no man's land. They didn't have a common language, but that wasn't a problem. The German soldiers thrust their bayonets into the earth, and the Russian soldiers blew across their open palms to show that the Tsar had been swept away. Hmm. Uh, There was a lot of this fraternization, and it only increased later in the year when uh, the Bolsheviks took over in Russia, and for all their faults, which we certainly know enough of by now, uh, they were committed to ending the war. And this meant there was even more fraternization between Russian and German troops. If you go online, you know, you'll only find two or three photographs of the Christmas truce of 1914 in the West, but you'll find dozens of pictures of Russian and German soldiers uh, fraternizing during these this extended period in 1917, including my favorite, which shows Russian and German troops dancing together mm. in couples with <laughs> one soldier from each side and each couple of Russians in their high fur hats. Wow. And But this really did represent a breakdown of military discipline, and the generals on both sides were appalled by this. 
And uh, fraternization, remarkable as as it uh, was, was only the beginning of the resistance and refusal to fight, especially on the Eastern Front. You've also described desertion on the Eastern Front. How how extensive was desertion on the Eastern Front? Well, there are no good numbers on this, but the British military attaché in Russia estimated that over the course of the year 1917, roughly a million Russian soldiers deserted their frontline units, and wow. most of them simply walked home to their villages. Wow. Uh, and this was one of the reasons why Russia pulled out of the war. You, you can't continue fighting with an army like that. Um, similarly, in the West, as the end of the war approached, late 1918, German soldiers started to desert in large numbers, not from the front lines, but from uh, rear area units where they either just dropped out of sight or evaded orders to go to the front. The police chief of Berlin uh, before the end of the war estimated that there were more than 40,000 deserters in hiding just in his city. And this is, you know, a major reason uh, why the German high command sued for peace. So I think these folks uh, should be celebrated because they helped bring the war to an end. Similarly, the French soldiers in 1917 who mutinied by the hundreds of thousands, uh, they, for the most part, didn't leave their trenches or camps, but simply refused orders to make the sort of suicidal attacks against machine gun fire that were so much a characteristic of this war. And uh, as a result, the French high command ordered no more attacks for the next year. There were also the political opponents of the war. You wrote about many of the British opponents in your book, To End All Wars. Uh, This is a time when they, they too, should be remembered and honored. Remind us. Remind us. Absolutely. Well, there were strong opponents of this insane war in all of the countries involved. Um, In Germany, the great radical Rosa Luxemburg, who spoke out strongly for freedom of speech, both in the Kaiser's Germany and in the new Soviet Union, was sent to prison for several years for her opposition to the war. In the United States, Eugene V. Debs, great labor leader, uh, spoke out against the war when the U.S. entered it, urged resistance to the draft. He was sent to prison in 1918, and he was still in prison in November 1920 when he received nearly a million votes for president on the socialist ticket. And let's remember that Woodrow Wilson refused to let Gene Debs out of jail even when the war ended. Even even in his last acts in office, uh, Woodrow Wilson wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, let Gene Debs out of the uh, Atlanta federal penitentiary. It was up to his successor to do that. That's right. It was Warren Harding who did it, of mm. all people. Uh, usually not well thought of as a president, but I'm glad he, he let Debs out of jail. And there were plenty of of war opponents in other countries as well. Uh, In France, the great socialist leader Jean Jaurès spoke out very strongly against the war that he saw coming in 1914, Uh, raced to Brussels for a last-minute meeting before the war began uh, with the leaders of uh, radical parties from other countries, put his arm around the shoulders of the German social democratic leaders, said, we will never make war on each other. Because of that, three days later, when he returned to France, he was assassinated. Three days after that, the war began. 
His assassin, incidentally, was uh, held during, in jail during the war, put on trial afterwards, and was found innocent because this was judged to be a crime of passion. Oh, of those uh, oh, legal gimmicks that has traditionally allowed men to get away with murdering women, but in this case it was used for another purpose. Adam, we've only got about uh, two minutes left here, but I've got to ask you about the, uh, whether you see any connection between the, the celebration of the Christmas truce of uh, 1914 and the plans now underway to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam War in the United States. Well, I do. I think when we commemorate the, the beginning of the sending of U.S. combat troops to Vietnam, we need to commemorate all the Americans who worked hard in every possible way to try to stop that war from ever happening in the first place. The resistors within the military who stopped fighting, the draft refusers who went to jail, the hundreds and thousands, millions of us, really, who marched in anti-war demonstrations. These, to me, are some of the real heroes of, of that period. Adam Hochschild, his book on opposition to World War I is called To End All Wars, and he wrote about the 100th anniversary of the Christmas truce for Tom Dispatch. Adam, it's always great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, John. It was a real pleasure. We spoke with Adam Hochschild about the Christmas truce of 1914 in December 2014, a hundred years later. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. This is our Christmas show, and now it's time for our special Christmas music feature. Our guest is Sean Wilentz. He's the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website. He also teaches American history at Princeton. He's written many books, including The Age of Reagan. It's out now in paperback. We turn to him today to help us understand what the heck is going on with the new Bob Dylan Christmas album. We reached him today in Princeton. Sean, welcome back to the program. Well, great to be back, John. Well, I want to start by listening to track one, Here Comes Santa Claus. It's a Gene Autry song, which I have to say is one of the most irritating holiday songs ever written, <laughs> even before Bob Dylan sang it. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, ran down Santa Claus Lane. Fixing and blixing and old as reindeer, pulling on the reins. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stockings, say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes Hang your stock and say your prayers. Sean, what is this? Is this a joke of some kind? No, it's not a joke at all. Although, you know, you could turn it into one by imagining that the person who's really singing is Vincent Price. There's <laughs> <laughs> a certain macabre uh, mm. aspect to the song. So you can look at it that way. You can look at a Bob Dylan song any way you want. But no, no, no. This is all very, very straight. Um, this is Bob Dylan in, in, in many ways um, looking back to his own childhood. 
and uh, he sang the songs that he heard as a kid in Hibbing, uh, where everybody you know listened to Christmas music, whether you were Jewish or not. Um, and he's recalling those times and those songs in that spirit. Uh, and I understand that uh, that the album itself is a uh, benefit, and uh, that the royalties are all being donated to charity. In perpetuity, that's right. Um, all of them. It's going to go. The royalties are going to feed America in the United States, and I think that there are some. Um, there's a group in the UK, and there's another group to you know to feed the homeless. You know, basically, this is uh, Bob Dylan in some ways um, being the character Pretty Boy Floyd from the old Woody Guthrie song. He's, you know, um, providing Christmas dinner to the families on relief. <laughs> just that he's not sticking up a bank, he's sticking up his own fans. <laughs> well, let's listen to another one, um, I'll Be Home for Christmas. I have to say, when Bob Dylan sings I'll Be Home for Christmas, you have to wonder, is this a promise or is this a threat? <laughs> I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Please have snow and mistletoe And presents on the tree Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas if only. In my dreams Bob Dylan, I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, sounds like a reason to bolt your doors, Sean. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's hard to say what home is for Bob Dylan, because he's on his bus so much of the time when he's not getting arrested, that, you know, being home for Christmas is a big deal for him, because, uh, you know, he's not on his bus. But, you know, this is part of what the album's about. That's a song that was originally recorded by Bing Crosby, as were, I think, 13 of the 15 songs on this album. It's a, sort of his tribute to Bing Crosby, among other things. But um, in 1943, remember, Christmas songs during World War II had a whole different meaning. I mean, they were very, uh, it was very touching, actually, very moving. It was one of the, uh, it, was, it was the music, actually, that kind of held people together, uh, wondering whether their boys, and in some cases girls, overseas would ever come home alive, ever. Um, so, you know, this is a very moving song. It was moving in the 40s. And then after the war, Christmas music became a kind of way to uh, assert with some uh, aggressiveness, to, to assert a kind of normality, which people hadn't felt, a lot of people in America hadn't felt uh, since the beginning of the Depression back in, 19, you know, back in the early 30s. So he's, he's, he's trying to recapture that in part, recapture that mood, which is bigger than Christmas, uh, bigger than Christmas in America. It has to do with a specific time and a specific place. And uh, it's also, as I say, a sort of tribute to Bing Crosby. He doesn't have Bing Crosby's voice, but he's copying Bing Crosby's phrasing. And I know he admires Bing Crosby's phrasing, so uh, that's his chance to do that, too. 
Well, let's listen to another one. Uh, maybe you want to you want to say anything about this one? Must be Santa. This one includes wow. our own David Hidalgo, uh, the the uh, great uh, East LA uh, musician, who's a big favorite of ours here. Indeed, Los Lobos. He's the yeah. man. He's maybe the most gifted, one of the most gifted musicians that Dylan's ever worked with. Um, um, Must be Santa is my favorite song on the album. It's a polka song. It's basically ripped off from a Texas, the arrangement of a Texas uh, rock polka band. Um, and but it also recalls again his Christmas time because it recalls the great polka bands of the Midwest of the 1940s and 1950s. People like um, you know Whoopi John Wilfart, um, his real name, Frank Yankovic. Um, Would you please spell the last name of Whoopi John <laughs> Wilfart, please? W i l f a h r t. Now, are you sure that this is not one of Bob Dylan's many pseudonyms? <laughs> Like Roosevelt Gook. And, no, no, I have a photograph of Whoopi John Wilford at the Minneapolis airport taken at about the same time, about 1948, with his band. And I, I, I happen to know a lot about Whoopi John. He, uh, he was quite a character. When he died, it turned out there was, he had left money in most of the, the hotels of the Midwest, um, stashed away of, uh, lots and lots of money and uh, um, basically hiding it from the feds. And he lived, lived quite a wild life, um, as you might imagine by a man named Whoopi John. <laughs> well, let's, let's... Which I would never call you, John. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Sean Wilentz, the official historian of the official BobDylan.com website. From the Bob Dylan Christmas album, let's listen to Must Be Santa featuring uh, David Hidalgo of Los Lobos. <laughs> They're dancing in the corridors here at KPFK. <laughs> Must be Santa, Bob Dylan with David Hidalgo from the Dylan... I'm, da- I'm dancing here in prison. Yeah, great time. <laughs> uh, let's listen to uh, another one. Here's Bob Dylan's Winter Wonderland. Wonderland. Winter Wonderland. Wonderland. Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening A beautiful sight, we're happy tonight Walking in a winter wonderland Gone away is a bluebird In his place is a new bird He sings a love song as we go along Walking in a winter wonderland In the meadow we can build a snowman and pretend that he is passing brown He'll say, are you married? We'll say, no man But you can do the job when you're in town Later on, we'll conspire As we dream by the fire To face unafraid the plans that we made 
Bob Dylan, he sounds like your grizzled old uncle who's had a little too much of the spiked eggnog at the family <laughs> gathering. I, I think that's the point, actually. Actually, there's the Wonder Bread Singers, you know, the, the, the whitest <laughs> white bread singers I've ever heard. But you also listen closely and you hear Donnie Heron on the, on the pedal yeah. steel. I think it's the first time that Winter Wonderland's been done, at least in recent memory, uh, with a pedal steel guitar. Dylan adds always a touch. There are touches of, of, uh, of the current Bob Dylan along with the Bob Dylan, what Bob Dylan was hearing when he was seven years old. You know, this this whole uh, project made me think of Dylan's uh, radio program on the yes. XM and Sirius Satellite, where uh, we see what a, a connoisseur and scholar Bob Dylan is of these pre, uh, pre-rock, earlier 20th century genres. In a way, this is part of that project. Very much so, except the difference is, I mean, this could be a show from that series called Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. But the difference is that he sings all the songs. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't just introduce them. But in fact, one of the songs, What Must Be Santa, actually did appear in the, um, I forget the name of the, of the band, but uh, anyway, on, on his Christmas show from, from XM, you know, Sirius XM. So, yes, there is a similarity. He knows a lot about it. He wants to, you know, this is an active archival, uh, you know, he's an archivist, among other things, and um, this, this album is an example of that. Uh, let's listen to another one. Of course he has to do Old Little Town of Bethlehem. little town of Bethlehem, I can only say there must be some way out of here. <laughs> this is not one of my favorite cuts on the album. <laughs> um, there, there, there are others that are better. Um, uh, a little town of Bethlehem, yeah, not his best performance. Well, you know, some we... Of songs, some of the, well, some of the songs just don't, I mean, Christmas produced a lot of interesting, wonderful music, which is why so many people cut Christmas albums. Mm-hmm. Everybody from you know um, Frank Sinatra to uh, Ray Charles to uh, Barbara Streisand. I mean, even the Jews cut Christmas albums, right? Uh, Neil Diamond has a new one, even the second one. Um, so th- there's a songbook, a real songbook. But some of the songs are very difficult. This is one of them, actually. And uh, the Christmas song, the famous Mel Torme song, is also you need a real range to sing those songs well. And I'm afraid that this doesn't quite do it, at least not for me. We're speaking with Sean Wilentz. He's the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website, bobdylan.com. One thing that strikes me about this this uh, music that's so puzzling, so confusing, so troubling to the uh, Bob Dylan's uh, um, classic Band-Aid. music, yeah. Bob has always 
uh, made a practice of pulling the rug out from under fans who thought they had him pegged. Right. He spent a lot of his career refusing to fulfill his fans' wishes. Right. And this is certainly part of that. Uh, you can see it that way. I mean, the other thing is this is a cover album, right? I mean, these are all cover songs. There's not a single Bob Dylan song on here that he wrote. Um, and whenever Bob Dylan does a cover album, um, it usually means that there's a change there's a change are going to come. <laughs> um, he did self-portrait, which got roundly panned, especially by, I don't know if I can say this on the air, but you'll, you'll remember Greal Marcus's famous first line of his review in Rolling Stone of that album, which is, what is this blank? Um, what is this crap, but not quite crap? Not quite that, yeah. And then, you know, and, and then he went on to do, you know, Blood on the Tracks. Right? Yeah. Um, then he did the cover albums in uh, the early 90s, you know, the two folk acoustic albums, uh, Good As I've Been to You and World Gone Wrong, and the next thing he comes out with is Time Out of Mind, which is a whole different thing. Yeah. So who knows what's going to come? Here's, here's another cover-up. So it's, 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 it's Bob Dylan trying to, trying to... And I actually kind of mean this. It's him plumbing his depths. He's trying to find something. He's trying to locate something in his soul, in himself, in his music. And this is the way he does it, by singing other people's songs, singing a whole album of other people's songs. Um, so, so it's interesting for that. You have to watch out for that. The second thing is... This is the first time he's done a Christian album since Shot of Love. In other words, this is a spiritual record. This is about his beliefs. I mean, you know, he's, 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 he's a Christian of a, of a very weird kind. So you have to see it in that context, too. I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which Dylan is... And that also disappointed his fans, by the way. You know, when he went gospel, people thought... Yes, just disappointed on. is putting it mildly. Yeah, people went nuts. Um, although I think that, in retrospect, if you go back and listen to some of those albums, not, not all of them, not saved, but, but if you listen to Shot of Love again, you will be very surprised. There's a lot of really good music on it. Well, got to serve somebody. Uh, in retrospect, does have some, some strengths. Uh, slow Train Coming, absolutely. And, but go back and listen to Shot of Love sometime. You'll, you know, the song about Lenny Bruce, um, uh, it's him kind of being semi-secular. Um, but anyway, my point is only that Bob Dylan is doing a lot of different things at, at the same time, and he's doing a lot of different things at the same time in this album. It just sounds so schmaltzy and innocuous, but nothing with Bob Dylan, even at, at its most schmaltzy, is, is to be taken completely at face value. Well, I think we've got time for one more. Let's listen to, from the Bob Dylan Christmas album, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself. A merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide gay Next year all our troubles will be miles away Once again as in olden days Happy golden days of yours Faithful friends who are dear to us Will be near to us once more 
faithful friends who are dear to us. Uh, Sean Wilentz, I don't know, you can say, uh, you know, this isn't singing, it's croaking. But, you know, when Tom Waits croaks, a lot of people think it's great. Or when Louis, Louis Armstrong sings this song, and he, you know, he doesn't have a beautiful voice either in the classic Absolutely. sense. I don't, know, I don't know what the complaining's about. I really don't. It's <laughs> the same voice that's saying, you know, love and theft, and, the, you know, I, I, I don't quite get it. It's that I think it has more to do that you're not, you're used to hearing these songs sung by Nat King Cole. Yeah. Or by, you know, someone with, or Mel Torme, someone with a very smooth voice. Um, so... Bob Dylan is certainly adding a new dimension to Christmas <laughs> that we didn't hear before. Um, but it's a voice that is instantly recognizable, you know, much as, say, Louis Armstrong's was. You know, when you hear those voices, it takes you two, two nanoseconds, you know who you're listening to. Yeah. And um, so immediately that conjures up a whole series of associations. And then it's not just the voice, which at times falters, it doesn't hit the notes, you know, on that, on, that, on that track in particular. But again, it's about the phrasing. Listen to how he's parsing out his words. Listen to how he's doing that with the music. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a very um, much more complicated record than, than people uh, would think about because he's taking all that seriously. Maybe more seriously now than anyone else because this song has been sung by a million other people. Yeah. I mean, Bob Dylan... When he sings, you know, I don't know, um, um, Summer Days or any of the songs that he's done recently, he's the only person who does those. Maybe Sheryl Crow will do them too, but very few anymore, right? It's not like Peter, Paul, and Mary. It's his song. Now he has to go up against the entire galaxy of American singers going back to, you know, Eddie Cantor and before. So he has to add something new to a tradition, and that's part of what's going on here too. Sean Wolentz is the official historian at the official Bob Dylan website. He also teaches American history at Princeton. Sean, thank you for helping us understand. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure. We spoke with Sean Wolentz about Bob Dylan's Christmas album in December 2009. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music